Today's episode is also a video interview, which you can check out along with my live stream at youtube.com slash Eric Hunley, or just go to erichunley.com and you'll be directed there. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we are joined by Simon Lancaster. He is of bespokespeeches.com. I love the word bespoke. We're going to go into that in a minute. I met um, or was introduced to Simon by Mark Bowden, and that was because in an aside, Mark Bowden spoke about Simon Lancaster and his book while they were evaluating Donald Trump's recent speech. And I've had Mark Bowden on multiple times, along with Tracy Thompson and the other folks on the behavior panel and the whole behavior panel. And I'm really honored today to have you on, Simon Lancaster. How are you doing? Really well, and I'm so grateful to you for inviting me on. This is fab, Eric. Thank you. Well, thank you. And as I said a minute ago, I just love the word bespoke. And there's actually kind of a a funny story with that. But I had a previous guest on a couple years back, Jocelyn Stone. She's an adult entertainer. Yeah, she doesn't like the term porn star. But she and her friend would make um, videos, you know, specialized yeah. for clients. And one of your fellow countrymen, John Ronson, who uh, writes for The Guardian sometimes has written some fantastic books. I'm a huge fan. He yeah. did t- and talked about bespoke porn. And I asked her about that. I said, so are you doing bespoke videos? And she had no idea what the word was. And then she and her friend were talking later on their own podcast saying, he said this crazy word, what What does that mean? Is that even a thing? So I love the story. I love the word. Yeah. It's so fantastic. I, d- I don't know what it is. Maybe there's something in the air today. Uh, but I, I've actually, I was talking about porn. <laughs> now, now you're worried. Now you're worried. Okay. No, it's a day that ends with why. Yeah, j- just, just a couple of hours ago. Just a couple of hours ago. And I'll tell you why. Because someone was saying, what's a speechwriter like? And I was saying, I was saying to them that being a speechwriter, often you, you get this image that the speechwriter is like a Machiavellian puppeteer operating in the shadows and i said no the correct analogy is actually that we're more like a fluffer on a a porn movie and we're the one that gets them ready to (laughs) so uh, you've uh, you've transcended you used to say intellectual cross-dresser yeah, well, indeed. That's it. So I've gone from transvesticism to to being a porn star. So you can see you're already you're, you've done your research so well. You've already broken down completely in the first two minutes. You know exactly how my mind works. Well, perfect. Perfect. And you have a, a, a mutual friend, uh, Mark Bowden. Yeah. And I can I can totally see by his personality. Now, what I'm doing on my show is I have this strange thesis that body language, persuasion, manipulation, all the way is a spectrum from trying to influence people to building a cult. Yeah. It, it's all on a overall spectrum. And as such, I interview a lot of different people in different areas of it. And one thing I find interesting is on the body language front, there's a lot of readers 
And then there are people like Mark Bowden, who obviously reads, but he's a projector. And I feel like you as well work on the projection side. You'll read to see if you're getting feedback, but you're kind of more about um, shaping a message and putting it out for people to digest. Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I would summarize it is that Mark is a body man and I'm a word man. So I'm all about, you know, the words The where I met Mark, funnily enough, I think it was it was two years ago. And we met in the middle of a forest in Sweden, of all places. Now, what and what we were doing, it was for a firm of Scandinavian management consultants. And basically, they should have televised this, it would have made wonderful TV. We basically took six people who were terrified of public speaking and we got them to deliver speeches to the 900 people in the room which they all did to stand in ovations and now I'll be honest with you there's a lot of people who work in in the field of body language given a on body language and most of the people that I have worked with over the years, because I don't claim expertise on body language, not in the slightest. You know, I'm I'm a wordsmith. But most of the people I've worked for are found to be like actually defective. They do more harm than good. You know, they <laughs> people to repress their personalities. You know, don't do that. Don't show this, you know. And and I get left feeling, hang on a sec. It's like you've you've put a vacuum cleaner to the backside of my speaker and you've hoovered out their personality. And Mark did not do that. Mark, mm. absolutely brilliant at body language. And he really got them expressing this is his thing. So we, we, we met in this forest in Sweden and we had a lovely dinner together. We'd read widely the same sort of stuff. We both had an obsession with the Beatles and we both <laughs> enjoyed the wine as well. So we, we had the most amazing um, time together and it was very generous of him to to wave my book around on, on the, the podcast well fabulous and it's funny because i can see where that might be the same philosophy you from all the speeches and everything i've seen seem to want to take the personal elements of the person or their personality and enhance what they are saying or what is natural to them and i'm going to guess and just if you focus on what they're already doing and say amp that up a little bit, other things are going to naturally recede. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. Totally. So, you know, I, I always start with my clients mm -hmm. with the assumption you have something brilliant to say, and it's my job to try and pull that out of you, which I, I will do. I, I, you know, I have good questions that I can ask pretty open questions that will just get people um, to open up. And then you just take the seed of an idea that they that they have, have generated and then you, you plant that, you allow that to, to grow rather than, I think, what some communicators and speechwriters can do, which is they think I know exactly what he, he she needs to say. And, you know, they think they know better than the person writing for. I always um, start off from a position of complete humility with my clients. And if anything, the challenge for me is to completely squash down my preconceived ideas about whatever it is that they're trying to say. You know, I've been a speechwriter for 20 years now. I don't know how many times I've written speeches about climate change, you know, about values, about visions, all of these kind of stuff. I've written so many speeches about them. And there's a real danger for me 
that that I go in and see a new CEO who's launching a new strategy, a new vision, whatever it is. And instead, I think I'm going to tell this client exactly what they need to say. The key is to really get into their soul. And because then when it's their words and their ideas, what they see in their head, they will speak with so much passion and so much authenticity. They don't actually need much help with the body language because it will come naturally to them. They, they will believe what they say already. By doing it in their voice, too, does it make it much more natural for them in terms of memorization, too? Like, if it yeah. sounds like something they would say, even if they don't get the words exact, it's still yeah. something that they're saying. Is that something you focus on? Yeah, totally. So, like, psychologists talk about this idea of schema, don't they? Like, you know, the way that we connect ideas together, the way that our brains work through neuron connections, synapses, and all of that, like mind maps, you know, and it's my job to try and find out what's going on in your head. What's the little tube map, the, you know, the train map <laughs> that underlines what you're saying? And, mm -hmm. and to do that effectively, I really do need to squash down my, my own thoughts and ideas because they will say words to me that instantly activate either my own schema or if not the schema of someone else who I wrote a speech for three weeks ago yeah. and you know then you're going to come up with something that is is just really hard for your principal to deliver and and probably it'll be really hard for the audience to hear as well because you'll wind up with that awful like dog's breakfast of different ideas thrown in together and no semblance of um consistency okay is this is a different genre, but it's still writing. I don't know if you're familiar, Steve and King's on writing, but he says yeah. a, a very important. I, it ago. I don't remember it to 20 years ago. I think I read it. It's a brilliant book, isn't it? The key element of it, though, is kill your darlings. And I know he didn't come up with that originally or kill your children's another version of it. Do you sometimes have to do that too? Like in a speech, you might have a part that you just is such a clever turn of phrase or statement that you love it and you realize that it's kind of out of consistency yeah. with the rest and you have to chop, even though it's the best part, you got to chop it out. Yeah, well, for Stephen King and for other kinds of writers, I think it's actually easier to kill your own darlings than it is for the speechwriter who frequently finds instead that it's someone else who comes along with a knife <laughs> and they want to kill your darlings. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You don't even have ownership over the slaughter of your darlings. And rather, instead, you'll prepare this beautiful speech that you're so in love with. And then you'll send it off to some big corporate firm, oh. the head of finance and the head of strategy. All of them will then be brutal. And I, I feel about these people the same way that people would feel about real child killers, you know, because <laughs> the metaphor is absolutely right about the speech. Your, your writing is your baby and you want to protect it and look after it. And these nasty people in corporate life are killers. Exactly <laughs> right, Eric. You've got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that actually leads into the metaphor um, question, too. Is that yeah. what causes some of the speeches to have the mixed metaphors that you speak about in your book where you, you write it and you, you have one consistent voice and theme going through and some accountant goes, oh, no, that that's not the way you say that the proper phrase would be this. And so then it goes from, uh, I think you say journey to um, mechanical, architectural, um, yeah. 
organic. I, I don't remember all of your terms, but is that what happens is they get in there, muck it around, and sometimes they do the most damage by changing just little elements? That's it. That's it. And so what you'll find is like within companies, different parts of the company often have a different metaphor in mind. So typically what you'll find is the people, the, the head of sales, head of commercial, will view the company as a warrior and we're fighting and it's blood on the streets. I mean, we're getting killed out there. You know, that's the way that head of sales will speak. And then the head of strategy will speak about it as if, you know, it's a, a plant that, you know, you're, we're planting seeds here and we need to allow them to grow, blossom. The company change needs to happen. It's evolution. We want organic growth. And then the head of HR will view it as a car and they'll talk about we've got to drive change, accelerate reform and, you know, um, put on turbochargers. And oh, my God. And then the CEO will probably think about the company as his baby. And so he'll have that metaphor. And what you find is that there'll be some some poor idiot, you know, in the middle of this in the company trying to make sense of all these different ideas. And because all the people that they're trying to mediate between are far senior to them, what you'll then get is just mixed metaphors. So the the, the coordinator, the mediator will think, well, I need to reference what the head of sales said and the head of strategy. So all those metaphors will go in there and then you just end up with a jumble, which is why um, leaders who have a clear voice and a clear vision and are actually have that psychopath tendency that John Ronson writes, <laughs> you know, leaders who have that kind of thing going on can often come up with much clearer messaging because they'll just think, you, you, you folk know nothing anyway. Let me tell you how it is. Steve and Jobs. then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or D Donald Trump, or, you know, I oh, mean, yeah. you know, the, yeah. These are people who have really clear, clear ideas of, of what they want to say. And that's great for the audience. It makes it so much easier for the audience rather than what they're seeing is a collection of different ideas from different places in the organization. It's funny you mentioned Donald Trump, because I'm going to go back to the behavior panel and I encourage everybody to watch them. They're brilliant. You know, four people packed in there. Yeah. That speech of Trump, you can feel the tension between what was written for him and him just taking control and throwing in his own asides and, and things like that. And yeah. that must be fascinating for you to watch as a, a speechwriter, because I think he writes a lot of his own stuff or he ignores half of what's told him. Yeah. Cause I, I thought that that speech was absolutely brilliantly constructed. He started off with just an appeal to virtue, you know? So he said, a president has no greater duty and to keep people safe. And that's what you start from a point that no one can disagree with. That's mm -hmm. exact. And then he was like, he, he condemned the officers in Minneapolis, you know, made it clear he, he was not defending them in any way. They're appalling behavior. But we need law and order. You know, so he, it's a, he's one of these people that on the, the, the page, it, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And of course, a lot of the trouble comes with the delivery, which is why the body language panel has such fascinating insights. The thing that I've noticed is is when it's his own words is when he does that thing. You know, that thing he does. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's him actually indicating. Look at what that body language is. You know, uh, I wrote he, this. He's writing. <laughs> so he's letting you all know this is this is me. I am really the author of mm. of this. But yeah, I find it fascinating. He's, uh, you know, 
Um, I always, I, I just, I don't get into the politics like sure. the behavior panel. I, d- I don't get into the politics. I'm kind of like, does that work? What's, what's going on there? You can't and, though with your profession, it's difficult for you to get into politics. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's one of those, it's one of those uh, tribal issues, but it's one of the things as well that, you know, you've got to be very careful as well, because you say, if you say, I think Trump's brilliant at anything, then people will just straight away, oh, okay, you're one of them, are you? You know, even though what you're given is a professional perspective. Well, hang on a sec, I'm sorry, but you just look at the way that he rouses a crowd, Mm -hmm. you know, and he can speak for 110 minutes and have them all in the palm of his hand like that, regardless of politics. There's not many people, there's not many orators that can do that. You know, most people have, like TED Talk, they've got an 18-minute max, and then the, the audience is like, Right, I really have had enough of you. (laughs) He has a bit of a stand-up comedian in him. He definitely has comic timing. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a factor. He's an entertainer, first and foremost, isn't Mm -hmm. he? And I I mean, you know, whether it's his involvement with boxing and wrestling in the 80s or The Apprentice more recently, this is is a, a guy who has an intuitive understanding of drama and how to grab people's attention and how to pull them along. And he does it in such a masterful way. And people just like they do with the great entertainers, they, they, they go into his world and they'll go along with it. Yeah. Now we'll go with a safer subject, I guess, so to speak, but I kind of am curious your thoughts. You've mentioned Steve Jobs a lot, and that's why I brought him up earlier too. I do think he is one of the great presenters of all time. What are your thoughts when, after he passed, and you've seen Tim Cook develop because Tim Cook is no Steve Jobs. I think Tim would be the first one to say it. But at first, everything seemed awkward. Do you think that was some of the mixed metaphors possibly or not quite as clean of a message? And he seems to be getting better and better year over year. Yeah. Well, what what, what I thought w- w- was interesting, because I've worked with CEOs quite often at that point of transition, mm-hmm. you know, they have to very quickly send a message to people saying, this is who I am. And you don't get a second chance at that. You have It's your first speech, basically, where everything you say will then be judged for, forevermore. You can't do it again. So it's that first speech is so important. And absolutely, he was kind of like a mini me, wasn't he? And I think that that was totally the message that they would have needed within the company mm. not that I worked for apple but you know when you have like a real a, a big charismatic personality at the top like that i mean it, well in in politics or in business you see they mm. go and all of a sudden the whole thing just completely falls to bit and i thought that in maintaining the steve jobs style dress language of personification you know tim cook tim cook is good with metaphors and i think he's the same as with mm. Steve, where ultimately it's all about personification. You know, the products are always personified. So as I recall, um, when he was launching the Apple Watch, I mean, he talked about it as your intelligent guardian, you know. Uh. So again, it was the same personification that you had. But I think Tim Tim Cook's done an incredible job and has moved Apple with with the times. You know, it could have gone a very different way. I think it's an interesting parallel, perhaps, with Pixar, where they've had, I mean, they've had a really disruptive history, actually, haven't they? But and they've 
you know, from Lucas to Steve Jobs, John Lasseter, and now, of course, mm. John Lasseter out, out of the way. And so Pixar has more more of an idea, you know, is more used to this kind of what can we grow from the ashes? Well, here. it was not only the leaders, but is what they were doing. Like they backed into what they became with Steve Jobs. That they were developing software for other people to use to create animation and movies. That's why they were under Lucas, is it was an extension of Lucas Arts. Under Steve Jobs, you had Lasseter and them saying, Well, we have to show off what our software can do at SIGGRAPH, I believe it was, which is an animation conference. And let's put together a little bit of a short that demonstrates the cap- capabilities of our software. Well, it turns out that Lasseter, I believe, is the same guy who was fired from Disney and really loved animation, went through his blood, you know, completely and had an incredible imagination and took this opportunity to create something all on his own. And voila, all of a sudden they're winning awards with something that's a demo for a product and credit to Steve Jobs. Yeah. He kept throwing money after it because they were in the hole, completely in the hole. And he just is like, he saw something there. He just kept throwing money at money at it, money at it. And ironically, Steve Jobs fortune is not from Apple. It's from Pixar. Yeah. And the whole, yeah, the the Disney thing. Here's This is what I think is really interesting, actually, because it all Apple, Pixar and language, what we're talking about, it all kind of comes together because I think... You know, the, the the thing that Pixar did so cleverly was personifying products. And so, you know, their first their first little um, short was the Luxor lamp, right. isn't it? Which is still their logo. And that was the whole basis that they'd brought a lamp to life. They'd brought a product to life. And then, of course, Toy Story, their first oh, yeah. big full length. And the whole idea of that is we're bringing products to life. And this is something where in corporate life, writing speeches for big CEOs, you know, that's exactly what you want to do. The pro- make the product a person. And then people can instantly think this is lovable, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and that's what Steve Jobs did in all of his product launches. You remember when he launched the Mac? Sure. And he, as, hello. Yeah, hello. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, totally. And it's like, this is a human being. This, I mean, do, you know, for crying out loud, do, do any of us talk to our Max? We, you know, that never happened. That was never a thing. Well, but I whole... do, but it's it's not usually a polite conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and a bit one-sided and often gets turns to violence, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, but then I realized the price and I go, well, hold that thought. <laughs> yeah. The amount of times that I've wanted to really do damage to my printer, I have to say, and I'm just kind of like, you know, my office is on the first floor, and I'll just, I'm, I just want to see it smashed to smithereens below. Well, then I'm, I'm going to do a public service. Watch the movie Office Space and what they do to a fax machine. Ah, uh, okay, I'll look it up. It is, it is brilliant. You might even be able to find it on YouTube just that segment, but uh, Office Space fax machine. Brilliant. Fabulous. Now, on that note, one thing early when I was um, talking to you and pitching you, I was talking about the micro and the macro. And this I'm curious about as a communicator and a podcaster, YouTuber, all of that. When you are writing a speech, are you writing 
to the macro as in everyone, or are you writing to the one and you're just amplifying it so everybody can hear? Oh, wow. What an amazing question. You know, I think you that's such a, a great question. I, I think it's a mixture. You know, I, I think as as a writer, I always try to imagine the audience as, as a single person, you know, and I will really try and visualize that person as much as possible so that I'm then having a conversation directly with them. But of course, then if you imagine it's too much of an individual, then there's a risk that you can say things that will actually really offend five percent of people in the audience and if you keep making that mistake over and over again by the end of the speech you've pissed everyone off you know (laughs) (laughs) and so I think yeah probably probably Eric I think it it would be a combo of the both that I would start off imagining it it as a combo with one and then as I get to editing and checking I'm just doing that kind of sense check and I'm imagining instead it's being scrutinized by the 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 shareholder in the audience who wants you sacked, you know, mm-hmm. by your biggest critics, you know, by the angriest people in the room. And I, I like go through it and thinking, well, well, what would they think of that sentence? Right. OK, well, that's that that's got to go. But I think, you know, it's a combination of the, the two. I, I spoke about it focusing on the, the micro, but I think the macro is actually the the easiest space to find yourself in and just thinking what are the things that hold us all together that unite us all and they are the points that you'll probably try and start your speech on when you're thinking about the framing of the speech that's where you want to go with like with donald trump's opening line that we mentioned earlier a president has no greater duty than to protect his citizens Mm -hmm. you know well who's going to argue with that you know no one really so that's you know, so a combo of the micro macro. Okay, and I bring that up. It's interesting, you um, the Donald Trump thing in the podcasting world because podcasting is an intimate medium. You're usually speaking yeah. to somebody with their earbuds in, so very, very isolated, immersive, and you're always watching out for words like group speak, like "hello, everybody." Because now we've just distanced. Yeah. You're more likely to say hello. And that's kind of where I was going on that. So like Trump's introduction that you mentioned, a person's greatest thing. He didn't say, hey, all of you, a person's great. He said a person's greatest thing. So he's kind of, it's nebulous when you're speaking, like he could be speaking directly to you. Yeah. Or he could be to a crowd. Well, I think there, that maybe, maybe the difference is actually about the style of sure. And and how appropriate it is, not just for the speaker, but also for the context and the people that they're talking to. So uh, someone back in ancient Greece who wrote a lot about, who wrote the definitive book, really, on rhetorical style, a guy called Longinus. And he had this, you know, you had a grandiose style, you have a plain style and you have a colloquial style. And so in podcasting, presumably, you just want it to be as colloquial Sure. as possible and not on the yeah, script talking about porn and no. <laughs> and fluffing <laughs> and oh god <laughs> i'm gonna get in trouble for this one i can feel it already um and then but then at the grand the grandiose end you know if it's a president, right. president of the united states making a speech you want it to be grandiose and so it's a completely different kind of thing you know someone like barack obama 
I think, is a great example of someone who's who's able to jump between those two voices. And mm. so he can do the grandiose, you know, I am close to God's thing, right. you know, that that kind of voice uh, better than anyone, you know. Where I've seen, you know, sometimes when he's channeling, he's just kind of, you know, I, I've just realized I'm doing faking an American accent to an American audience. which is probably oh, yeah, a I, I did it with Mark Bowden earlier, so I, you know, we're even. <laughs> Mine's brutal. Fake idiots of themselves. Good. Okay. Oh, t- I was in a play once um, playing Captain Lombard. It was Ten Little Indians. Yes, the name's been changed, everyone, too. And then there is none. Agatha Christie, another person who's being canceled. I was the lead in it, and Philip Lombard, the character, is British. And I, of course, put on this just horrible, horrible accent, whatever you want to call it. And then we have somebody who was actually English in the cast later. And he looked at me and goes, well, at least you're consistent wherever you're from. <laughs> it's brilliant, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's nothing like, like, like an American doing a British. My favorite is Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, which oh. was so wide, wide of the mark. You, you just can't believe it. But he said, he said in his defense um, that when he was on the set, every, every, he was asking people, like, how's my accent? And everyone was just like, it's great. It's brilliant. <laughs> Out of the park. So maybe they, they were the equivalent of fluffers just bringing in the porn reference again. <laughs> For a few seconds, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to have a callback. Feel good. They just wanted to, yeah. Well, so then, you know, we've gone down in the gutter. Let's class it back up and say you've talked about you discovered that people in having private education versus public education that their sentences were three times as short. And I'm not talking about prison. Yes, <laughs> only very good. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, this is, is is quite extraordinary, actually. And you see a similar thing with um, with people who um, speak English as a second language. Mm. Um, you know, I do quite a lot of work overseas. I'll go to India, Malaysia, where England English is 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 their second language, and Africa as well, actually. And the, the far more adverbs and adjectives, you know, far less plain English. And you can kind of try and work out why this might be. You know, I didn't have um, a posh upbringing. I had quite a confused upbringing, actually, because I grew up on a council estate in London, which is the equivalent of the projects um, in the States, um, and was brought up by a single mum on benefits. So quite a poor background. But then as part of one of Margaret Thatcher's strange um, social mobility schemes i got plucked out of the council estate and dropped into a private school when mm. i was 10 years old which was again it would have made quite good tv actually this kid from the estates going and hobnobbing with these uh, posh kids and so i personally i'm kind of a strange mix i can see both ends That's and I, I well i can understand that for posh people people who have had privileged backgrounds you want to conceal that and so you want to get your language down from that grandiose intellectual level and sound very plain speaking, you know, whereas for people who have had poorer backgrounds, you can see that they might want to compensate. And so they might do the opposite thing and throw in longer words because they're they're desperately trying to say to people, look, I'm I deserve to be listened to, you know, so that's kind of I don't know why 
um, it is. I can't be certain about that, but that's my kind of hypothesis. What I can say with certainty is when I did this huge study looking at the language of about 50 different politicians, there was just a clear difference in sentence length between posh people, 12 words a sentence, and less posh people where it could be as you say, like 25 plus words a sentence. Is that the same with confident versus non-confident people? Because I can picture in my head, if you know what you're saying and you're confident, you'll make a statement and you're done. Whereas if you're uncertain, you're kind of checking back. Is he buying this? Is she buying this? Am I getting through? Let me put another word in there or something. And that's, that's sort of where my mind went when you mentioned that is the whole, not just proving oneself, but possibly the whole uh, aspect of I'm going to keep coloring it to make sure I'm actually communicating the message correctly. It it may, may be partly that, but I think with confidence, you're then into a frame where to be confident is definitely good. And to be, not confident is not so good, which would imply that shorter sentences are always good. And I'm not sure that that's the case. So the okay. the, dis- the way that I might distinguish instead between the two is rather that it's a difference between people who are sales people who know how to spin a message well, mm. and between people who are actually more focused on finding truth in argument. That's the way that I might. There's there's a guy, um, James Pennybaker, who's, um, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying he was the last time I checked. He's a professor of linguistics at um, University of Austin, Texas, actually. And his theory is that people will speak in longer sentences. When people are speaking in longer sentences, they're actually being more honest than mm. people who are speaking in shorter sentences because the world cannot be explained in sound bites you know it's because it's always there's always ambiguities and confusion and you know complexity and in action and you're honest if you acknowledge that and to acknowledge that means your sentence will never end <laughs> you know <laughs> that sounds almost like dunning kruger a little bit because i've i've interviewed academics and i hate editing them yeah oh i bet yeah. Because yeah. of just that, not only do they go on in long sentences, but they'll change gears and rephrase in the middle or correct themselves constantly. And I'm like, just spit it out. And it seems like the more into like, yeah, yeah, it's true because I don't, I have the attention span of a gnat. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to get it out there. Go, go, go. I'm trying yeah. to deliver a message, keep people listening. But you and the whole human race, right? We're we're all like that. We oh, all sure. have the attention of nuts. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the royal we. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of um humor, you have yeah. a a story that you like to tell. Can you share um, that with us? Yeah, I don't know which story this I I have a few kind of gags up my sleeve. I tell you one I'll, I'll tell you a real one, okay? Okay. So um, you know, because as a speechwriter, you're constantly trying to capture people's voices and understand how people speak authentically. Um, and so you do stuff like you measure sentence length, you me- measure metaphors. And I'll do impressions as well. And I'll do impressions uh, that would definitely be on the band list now, particularly when my clients are uh, from overseas. But one of my clients is Ghanaian, actually. So from West Africa. Um, and I wrote a speech for him which was all about focus, you know, 
and I'd practiced it and I thought this is going to be really good. And I, I then watched him delivering it and I watched with horror as he, he said, I want you all to fuck us. You have to fuck us. Like this. And I was like watching with horror. This is now going to the band segment, I think, hasn't it? But yeah, there, there are plenty of funny stories I could tell you about where where it goes wrong for the speechwriter. <laughs> Excruciating stories. Oh, I love that. How about your Einstein story? Yeah, yeah. So th- this is, this is um, the, apparently... Einstein during the 20s he was going all around the world and making the same speech over and over again about the theory of relativity and one of these lectures he was being taken there by his driver and he said on the way he said he said oh I'm doing this same lecture again I am so sick of saying it now and the driver said to him said well look I've got an idea I'm sick of hearing you deliver this lecture you know why don't I do it for you. I can dress like the scientist and you can stand at the back of the room like the driver and we'll see how it goes. And Einstein, who had a good sense of humor, was quite mischievous, said, you know, okay, then we'll, we'll give it a go. And so the driver got on stage and Einstein stood at the back of the room and he watched with wonder as his driver delivered this incredibly complicated lecture about the theory of relativity and he got it absolutely word perfect. But then, of course, the professor had introduced him, said, thank you very much indeed, Mr. Einstein. Now, does anyone have any questions? <laughs> At which point someone in the audience asked this humble uh, question, but the driver didn't miss a beat. He just said, very good question. And of course, it sounds very complicated, but the answer to it is so simple. Even my driver can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I bring that up because I when researching you, I've seen you give that speech multiple, multiple times. And <laughs> I want to explore that for a minute because you're also a musician. Yes. And I'm wondering if there's a direct parallel in the sense that you're performing the same joke multiple times, but yet it's still fresh. It sounds fresh every time I hear it. I've heard it before, but it still sounds fresh. Is it like the old song about the musician that by the time you're sick of the song, you've about got it down? Do you know what? I really think that's so true. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. And I think it's there's such a, um, a a kind of desire amongst communications professionals in particular to come up with something fresh, something new. And a lot of the time, I think what you want to do is just kind of keep improving what you've got, get it better and better and better. And then after a few years, you, you'll have, you, you self-edit and you keep you just realize I've now told that joke five times. Still, no one's laughed. I need to kill my darling to use the Stephen King thing. And then when you are sick of doing it, you know exactly how long to pause and all of this kind of stuff. I do believe that's so right. I think memorizing speeches is so important. Not enough people do it. I will never, ever deliver a speech. I did in the early days, I did, and it doesn't work. It's rubbish. You lose all connection with the audience. You need to get your stuff in your head. So I don't know whether you, I don't know how you knew I was a musician, actually, but I've just uh, I've done as a lockdown challenge. I have learned to play by memory every single Beatles album. Oh, from nice. Please me. Right. That you can see my I've videoed them. I've uploaded, you know, um, me playing them to YouTube. And it's been wonderful, actually. And I think your your, your brain is such an organ. And you need to work it in the same way. You know, people will quite happily go down the gym and spend hours mm-hmm. like 
for just to get that that tiny little muscle there working properly and uh, i think keeping your brain and your memory going is just as important and i think the the discipline actually of having written books is really good because then once you've written a book you you have those schema in your mind so clearly set out so that thought leads to that thought leads to that thought in the same way as memorizing a beatles album does what's your favorite beatles album eric um I kind of like pieces of each. I used to like the White Album, but there's elements that drive me insane. I'm kind yeah. of more of a Pink Floyd guy. Ah, well, there's so, a great, there's a well, great there's a handoff. Yeah, they they the, both were at um, Abbey Road, weren't they? They were both done at Abbey Road, and I think I'm right in saying that Alan Parsons yes worked uh, on both well, as well. He was an engineer on Abbey Road, and then yeah, I think he was a junior engineer on Abbey Road. And then kind yep. of came up higher and, oh, God, uh, Alan Parsons. We're going to segue again. See, I do that. Um, somebody I listened to actually knows Alan Parsons and had the privilege to hear the quadraphonic mix of Dark Side of the Moon inside of Alan Parsons' house with his own equipment. Wow. That would be just one 45-minute piece of heaven. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's So here's my um, my magical music moment which is almost up there i went to a friend of mine had a book launch party a couple of years ago in studio two of abbey roads wow and they have in there all of the original or many of the original musical instruments that were played on the albums nice. and so they and like really random stuff so, some of the upright honky-tonk pianos that they did songs like um penny lane on are now barely playable but they were all out to play and the guy who um who whose book launch it was who's a senior politician over here he was a senior politician over here a guy called alan johnson he knew i loved playing the beatles and so he got me on the grand piano in there wow. all night long and i was playing a kind of beatles melody on the same piano that they recorded hey jude let it be the long and winding road. And, and I mean, in actual fact, this grand piano was not just played on those albums. It was also played on, I think it was Life on Mars, Bowie's Life on Mars. Oh, wow. El Elton John's your song. It's like the most famous rock piano in history. And as soon as I sat down there and just played like a C major chord and I was like, that's it. That's it. I have found, I have found perfection, you know. Did you have chills? I did. I had to, uh, the hairs on the back of my neck. All night long, and like at this party, there were people there that I hadn't seen in years who were like, you know, all right, Simon. And I was just like, I was in. I mean, it was it was like a magical, magical ex experience. We've gone a bit off on a tangent here, but this absolutely. Is but but I love that, and I, I I like the mindset of it. And where I was going with this, how do you maintain that mindset to keep the speech or the concept fresh? Yeah. Be, do you do it by going into the detail? So, well, yeah, yeah, you've said it all before. You're focused so much on the beats and the rhythm that it stays interesting because you're dissecting it and perfecting it and kind of digging deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Yeah, I think maybe the thing that keeps me going on it, and maybe this is, you know, something that the musicians do as well, is you need to have just such a, and, and for you podcasting, Eric, you need such a remorseless focus on your audience mm -hmm. you know what do they want what do they need they do not want a speaker who sounds bored of his own scripts you know sure. and that, 
kind of reminding myself every time that I do it. These these people who are, are here, who maybe are paid to see me, listen to me, or wh- whatever, they're hearing this stuff for the first time. And so I've got to deliver it like it's it's coming for the first time. And this is actually where some of Mark's stuff, you know, about how to get yourself in the mood when you're not uh. necessarily in the mood, is, is, is really, really powerful. And just some of that stuff about, you know, the Amy Cuddy stuff, which I know is controversial, but like, you know, just doing that, getting yourself, getting your positive um, hormones flowing in order that you can make other people feel positive, I think is very important. If you go out like, you know, I don't really care about this. This doesn't matter to me. Then everyone's going to switch off instantly. Okay, well, I'm going to go with one more question because I know we're running late on time. And this is a hard one. But your job as a speechwriter is to help somebody deliver a message to communicate people or reinforce uh, a desire or need or policy. How do you reconcile it when it's something that you personally are a hundred percent against? Yeah, well, this is it's it's a really good it's a really good question. I I think the older I've got. And the more I've read into psychology and persuasion and human behavior, the less sure I have got about what is right and what is wrong. You know, and so here authors, you know, like Jonathan Haidt, you know, their works have profoundly changed the way I view the world because I'm kind of like, oh, I can see actually there are multiple ways of looking at this same issue, like the, you know, one screen two movies idea that was mentioned in a previous one of your podcasts, you know, and, and so I've actually, I've worked for all sorts of people. And some of them are people that some people could have taken the view, well, I'm not going to work for them. You know, so I've worked, done a lot of work with oil companies. I've worked with tobacco companies, you know, I've had no problem with that kind of stuff. I think the the one time where I, I personally felt you know, because with each of them, with oil companies and with tobacco companies, you can kind of re- rationalize. Well, this is about freedom of choice. This is about helping people travel. You know, whatever your way of looking at it is, you can rationalize it. But the one that I personally found very, very difficult was actually the Iraq war. And this was when I was a relative novice as a speechwriter. I'd been doing it about four years. And I, I was having to write speeches in favor of the Iraq war when personally I was opposed to it. And I found that very, very difficult to do because it's it's a matter of war <laughs> for, for crying out loud, you know. And so what I actually did then, I felt I just felt, you know, I, I, I felt like I, I'd completely sold out, frankly. And so I went backpacking for a year <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and then I came back and we'd all moved on from the Iraq war and I was able to resume my previous job. No, 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 no problem. But that was the, that was the one time that I can think of where I felt such a profound disagreement with the person, the, the points, not the person, the points that was having to be made in those speeches that it was just unpalatable for me. But most other speeches, I kind of view it, I guess, like a lawyer, which you can see is a good thing or a bad thing that it's just my, my, job to help this person articulate their argument in the best way possible right and that makes sense so you're not there to judge you're there to help them clarify whatever they're trying to say yeah which probably makes me sound like a complete mercenary asshole i'm sure i'm sure there are some people that i would refuse to work for 
um on, on principle um but you know yeah there, there are but they've never they've never called me up to be honest you know if if certain people did call me up for advice then i'm sure i would say no but most people particularly in business i'm kind of like yeah sure i'll help well that's fortunate and to close out if people want to call you up they can go to bespokespeeches.com indeed i love the way you did that that was such a beautiful seg eric i mean that was <laughs> that, that was like some of the segs on the sergeant pepper album you know where we just you seamlessly and beautifully from song to song there that was wonderful yes indeed so my website is bespokespeeches.com and my twitter handle is at bespoke speeches well fabulous and to hear that from an expert i'm going to kill this on a high note thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me eric thanks for listening and if you like what you heard please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hey, I'm Studio Steve. And I'm Veronica. And we, and we are, are the, the Podcast. We have a podcast all about podcasting. We cover everything related to the craft. How to start a podcast, how to improve a podcast, how to promote a podcast, and how to reach a bigger audience. So come check out our podcast, Pod Sound School. We're on all of the podcast players or on our website, podsoundschool.com. We are dedicated to provide our podskis with up-to-date, easy, and actionable information, sometimes outrageous and always fun. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming.